Thanks very much, Sue. So if you're visiting with us, actually, um, we're going through the book of Judges, and we've come towards the end of Judges, uh, when things are actually um, going slightly um, pear-shaped. Um, actually, could I lower the volume a little bit? Um, could we lower my, my voice um, a bit? I love the sound of my voice, but probably not in that in that volume. Let's, uh, um, let's pray that God will speak to us um, through this passage. Lord, we give you thanks for your word that is living and active, and we pray that your words will be planted in our hearts so they may bear fruit. Lord, um, we've learned so much from the book of Judges, and we pray that once again that you will speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think it's funny how... Um, how men know so much more about diamonds than women. It's because men are the ones who go and buy diamonds for women. And what I found um, first is that the whole diamond industry is a big sham. That's another story. The second thing that I want to uh, say is, uh, really, what I found is, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. You can do all the research and you can find the gem that you think is really, really valuable. But at the end of the day, unless you are an expert, you can't really tell a really precious gem from a flawed one. Unless you are an expert and you have this little glass to stare at it, you really just can't tell. In fact, most of us, I don't think we'll be able to tell from the real diamond from a fake one, even if we saw them side by side. Sometimes it's really difficult to tell because the fake ones have so much quality, so many qualities that are like the genuine diamond. And I think sometimes our Christian faith is like that. There are genuine believers and there are genuine religion. And then there are fake ones, but sometimes it's really difficult to tell which one from which. And to a certain extent, it's not our job to tell. God will... Um, God will divide uh, the people in the end. But we should examine ourselves to see if we are worshiping the true God or some version of God that we've invented, that, that we have shaped God into our image. If our faith is pure, whether, or, or whether our faith has all sorts of secular influence in it, is the faith that we have as one that we have received? Is, is, is it the one that we have received? Or has it um, become a different thing mixed with all sorts of other things? So take a look at Micah from our story. They seem, Micah and his mother, they seem to mean well, don't they? And they do many things that I think are very right. For example, when Micah returned the money, his mother consecrates the silver to Yahweh God in verse, uh, verse 3. In verse 5, we're told that they made an ephod, a garment that priests wear in their service to God and in discernment of God's will. They take religion really seriously. Rather than encouraging his son, Micah's son, to become an investment banker or a lawyer or something, he installed his son to be a priest in verse 5, later on, when a Levite comes along, he says, could you serve? Could serve us? Could you be the priest in our house? But I hope, I hope there has been a little bit of a squirming in you, in your seat, as I've described uh, Micah and Micah's mother, because there's something really amiss about what they're doing here. Um, they have the appearance of godliness, 
but they're not quite there yet. For example, with the consecrated silver, Micah's mother wants to make an idol, a clear violation of the second commandment, not to make an idol. When they make the idol, they put it in Micah's house, in verse 4, which seems harmless, but the law tells us there is only one place of worship in Shiloh with the tabernacle. The law, um, uh, the matter of the effort, it sounds great, but the effort is supposed to be worn by the priest in the, in the, in the, in, as part of the tabernacle worship. Even more wrong is the fact that when he makes the effort, he puts it next to some household idols, doesn't he? Installing his own son sounds great, but actually God has set aside a Levitical family to be his priests. It's not supposed to be just anyone. And we have to ask also about the Levite. What's he doing wandering around looking for a job? Out of the place that God had given him. In many ways, they seem so genuine. In many ways, they seem to mean well, but they're clearly misguided. And a certain appearance of orthodoxy, and what has happened is they've taken all sorts of other religions that are around them, and they've mixed those religions, and they've become, they have become part of their worship of Yahweh. And so we're told in no uncertain terms what they did in verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. You know, it's easy to look down on Micah uh, from our perspective, isn't it? When I read this passage like, uh, and passages like this, I think, well, how could, how could they be so wrong? How could they be so stupid in doing these things? It's hard for me not to feel a little bit of self-righteousness. But... If you really think about it, actually, it's what they did is not that far away from what we do often. In many ways, we think that we are worshiping one true God, when actually the influence of other people's, other religions' beliefs, or the world's beliefs have become part of our worship of Yahweh, our worship of Jesus Christ. Think about it. How many of you take into consideration lucky numbers? <laughs> How about horoscopes that you read? I have a friend whose mother was so adamant that he does not get married at certain dates, dates because they were inauspicious dates, and she professed herself to be a Christian. Isn't that a bit like putting an ephod next to the household idols? How about sex before marriage? I'm told, once again, that 80% of unmarried evangelicals have premarital sex. When did premarital sex become the norm? I mean, that is the norm, isn't it? 80% in the church. How about gay marriage? I did my theological education in a a very liberal uh, school uh, where salvation was all about social justice. Justice was what salvation was for them. And justice meant, meant equality for everybody. So there was a lot of a talk about gay marriage, how it should be granted, how the church should advocate for gay marriage. I'm all about justice. And actually, God is about justice. But as Alistair, Alistair McIntyre of Notre Dame writes in, the, in his famous book, Whose Justice? 
Which rationality? Whose justice are we talking about? Do we take the world's definition of what is right? Do we take their definition or do we take the scripture's definition? Who is to define what human beings are supposed to be like? How has the world become so much part of the church? I think in some ways these are some of the obvious ways that, the, um, that we have mixed in sort of the secular and the world's beliefs um, and how they become our own. But I think there are less obvious ones. I think in this world where really the self is the authority, where my well-being is the supreme concern, where individual, uh, individualism reigns, that has become part of our Christianity as well. I think it shows in the way that there's so much of sort of self-help in part of our Christianity. I mean, actually, it doesn't sound all that different from what Oprah would say in, in, his Oprah, in, in Oprah Winfrey show. Things like this. Christian ministers are filled with platitudes that sound like this. Um, Take risks and conquer your fears. God never forgets our dreams. Take risks and go and realize your dreams. Have passion to make your dreams come true. Never say never because that's not in God's vocabulary. You know, these are half-truths that are not Christian. If we're taking risks for God, if we're living our lives, if our dreams are aligned with God's, Christianity is telling, it tells us what to take risks for, what our dreams should be, what our fears should be. Not that we should just go and, and put ourselves in the center and realize our dreams. That's world coming into our version of Christianity. Another subtle way, I think, is once again the prevalence of prosperity gospel in the church. The way that we define success, it affects the church. I have a friend who just said, as I was preparing for this, we know that it's not about the numbers, but sometimes we still think it is. Sometimes we still think it is. Well, we know Christianity is not about our comfort, success in our careers, or even success in our relationships, but sometimes we think it comes down to all those things. That's prosperity gospel. It's creeping into Christianity, isn't it? And one final way, I think, um, is over-spiritualizing of everything. I think, sometimes like many pagans do, we over-spiritualize everything. Behind every closet is some devil. Behind every sickness is some evil, evil spirit. I don't think that's all that different from Taoism or Japanese spirituality that sees everything being influenced by the spiritual world. But equally, I also think the other, other side is also true. In the Western world, people don't believe that spirits exist at all. That we never think of the spiritual warfare that is being waged right now. We've let that secular worldview, uh, world uh, we've let it creep in into our Christianity. If we never think that, 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 that the spirit, uh, spiritual world has a part to play, in this world. We must examine ourselves. Are we worshiping God and what God has revealed? Or have we picked and chosen sort of the things that we like and have let the world creep in into what we believe and what we profess? So 
the danger of mixed religion, um, Micah and Micah's mother shows here. But then if you're asking, how do we know that our Christianity is pure? The passage, I think, shows us two ways, two ways that we can tell by examining our motivation and also the depth of our discipleship. So false motivation, if we are worshiping a version of God that we've invented, mixed in with Christianity, it's likely that we're doing that for a selfish reason. Look at the goal of all that Micah did. This is what Micah confesses at the very end, after making the idol, putting it into his house, installing his son, and later the Levite into his house. This is what he says in verse 13 to himself. I know that Yahweh will be good to me, will be good to me since Levite has become my priest. You see what he had been doing all along. He wasn't responding to what Yahweh had done for him. He wasn't living his life to glorify Yahweh God. In fact, it's the opposite. The whole thing had been about him. He was trying to do all these things. He was trying to manipulate God so that God would do, God would be good to him. The whole thing had been about him. He wanted to put God in debt. He wanted to be good so that God would owe him something. The motivation is self-centered. So if you're wondering, do I worship Jesus Christ? Or do I worship a version of Jesus that I've invented? Examine your motivation. Do I do it for myself? Or do I know Jesus? Am I responding to him and what he has done for me? Why do I go to church? Why do I tithe? Why why do I want to be salt and light in this world? Why do I keep the Sabbath holy? Why do I try to love my neighbor as myself? If this is so that you could put God into debt, your debt, and so you can say, surely God must be good to me now, then you're probably worshiping an idol that you've invented. Right motivation. Examine your motivation. Sorry, this is uh, number two. Um, But also... uh, if you examine your motivation and you've come, uh, if you're worshiping at the, end of the, uh, at the end of the day yourself, your comfort and all the things that you want, then it will produce a very shallow discipleship. Shallow discipleship. It will not produce any change at all. If, uh, it will not produce much change, if any change at all. Look at the lives of the people in this story. Micah. You can tell that his discipleship's really shallow. I mean, who would steal? This is 29 pounds of silver. He stole 29 pounds of silver from his mother. This wasn't his friends or business partners. From his mother. He steals 29 pounds of silver from his mother. And do you know the reason why he gives back the silver back to his mother? He says it in verse 2. The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse. The reason why he returns this 29 pounds of silver to his mother is because he heard his mother utter a curse. And he thinks, oh gosh, this might come true. There's no repentance in this man. He thinks, oh, I don't want to be punished for what I did. That's why he's returning the silver. And then there is the mother, 
who forgives. And in some ways, that's a good thing. But in other ways, I think it's, it's, it's a bit of a shallow, it's a, a forgiveness without demanding repentance. There's no, I mean, it, it's cheap, isn't it? That's cheap grace, forgiveness without repentance. But then, if you're not convinced that she wasn't quite right there, I mean, I think there's another character flaw that we, we're showing here. The mother then consecrates the silver solemnly in verse 3 to Yahweh. That's 1,100 shekels of silver. But then look how much she actually gives to the silversmith in verse 4. It's 200. She kept the 900 to herself. The Levites know better. Uh, He seems to be most concerned about making a living than true worship of Yahweh. In the next chapter, in fact, actually, he will go to the highest, the higher bidder. Somebody else will come along and he'll say, why don't you be a priest for us and we'll pay you more. He becomes a priest for the, for the tribe of Dan. Shallow discipleship. Why would there be real change in you when you, are, you worship yourself? If the motivation is the self, it will not produce deep discipleship, life-changing discipleship. But if we're caught up in the story of Jesus, then it will produce life that's different. Only when we are caught up in Christ's love, what he has done for us, we'll be able to love others self-sacrificially. If we have been forgiven again and again, again and again at the cross, we'll be able to be patient with others, kind to others, forgive others. Only if we know that there is a greater purpose, that greater being will want to develop self-control and discipline so that we can live a life that is greater than ourselves. Only those who follow Jesus Christ will live differently. I'm reminded of the missionary martyr, Jim Elliot, um, whom many of you know, who followed Christ no matter the cost. They weren't in it for themselves. They followed Jesus at the cost. Before he went out to a missionary, he famously wrote in his diary, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He wanted to bring the gospel to people who have never heard of Jesus. So at the cost of his life, he went. A few, a few, a few years later, he made contact with the Alka Indians, he and his four friends. The first contact, that went fine, and so they went back. All five were speared to death. That's costly discipleship. That is life being transformed by the story of the gospel. That's not... God must be good to me now because I have done all these things for him. And you know, that's not the end of the story either. Elizabeth Elliot, his wife, she was working nearby, and a few years later, in a remarkable um, uh, 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 instance of God's uh, providence, the two Alka Indians um, came to live with her for about a year. And after a few years, then she decided to go to the Alka Indians she went to the tribe that killed um, her, her husband. And many people, many people, including most of the people who killed her husband, came to Christ. That's not God, be good to me, religion. That's life-changing, costly discipleship, life that is caught up in the story of Jesus Christ. That's Christianity with conviction,
one that allows us to live our lives for something that's greater. But of course, the problem is verse 6. Number 3 now. In verse 6, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. At the end of the day, what Micah did was he sort of knew the law, but he picked and chose the things that he liked. He liked the blessing bit. He liked the parts about the effort. He liked, um, he, he, he didn't um, need a Levitical priest around because it didn't really matter in the end. He, well, he just wanted to be really religious. Doing things as we see fit cannot be the way to go. We've been marred by sin. Our ability to deceive ourselves is so great that we, we should not be able to, we should not trust ourselves, our judgment. We should not be the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong. The conviction of evangelical faith is that truth is not something that we go and discover. The truth has been revealed to us by God who knows better than us. We must live that truth that has been revealed to us. We can't pick and choose uh, choose the bits that we like and discard the bits that we don't like. We can't avoid all the challenging parts of the scripture. We can't make Jesus be about our comfort. We need to be challenged by who Jesus is, how he has revealed himself to be. And that's what you would expect in a true religion in a true relationship with true God, wouldn't it? If you're a dictator surrounded by sycophants, you will never be told that you're wrong, that your thoughts are wrong, your ideas and tastes are wrong. You will never be told that. But if you have a good friend, if you have a true relationship with a friend, they will tell you. If you're married, they will really tell you. That's what being in a relationship is. That's what being in a marriage relationship is is about. They will tell you things that you don't like. They will tell you to do things that you don't want to do. They will persuade you to change your mind on the things that you might even have invested your life on. That's what being in a relationship means. In a relationship, you will be challenged. And if we're in genuine relationship with Jesus Christ... He will challenge our thoughts because his thoughts are different from ours and he knows better. He is wiser. He knows you and he knows the world. He knows the past. He knows the present. He knows the future. There's no flaw in him. He is the image of the invisible God. And being in a relationship with people sometimes is difficult because people are sinful, because other people are sinful And they might be challenging in a way that you shouldn't be challenged. But when the scripture challenges you, your thoughts, your view of what's right and wrong, what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing, what you think is right, what you think is wrong, when the scripture challenges you, it's because it knows better than you. Because God is perfect. Micah picked and chose and was never challenged. Because he didn't have a relationship with God. He chose to believe that God was his servant. And if you doubt that, um, if, uh, if you doubt that Jesus 
that in some ways Christianity's challenges are bad for you, I plead you, I plead that you would look to Jesus Christ on the cross. I plead with you that you would examine his life. And if there is any flaw in him, I plead with you to find him, to, to see what the cross is like, how loving he is. You will not find flaw in Jesus Christ. It's difficult, um, once again, in diamonds to tell the real thing from uh, the fake ones. It's sometimes difficult to find, uh, to distinguish true religion from fake ones that we've made up. What it comes down to, really, is at the end of, at, at the, end of the day, Jesus. Do we follow Jesus? Do we know him? Um, do we know him and follow him in every way that he's challenged us? What's our motivation? Do we live for him? And do we really want a relationship with Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior? Or do we want Jesus as our servant? It comes down to Jesus. And I pray you will live for him. Let's pray.